Um, so my room that they put me in, I was probably two or three, was the loft upstairs. Uh, no, 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 no. This was just told to me repeatedly by my mother. And so I would be upstairs, which is was like up a ladder through a hole. And that was the upstairs because it's like an old cabin, right? You'd hmm. climb the ladder to the loft. And that was my... And you're a kid. You're my, having whatever, right? Right. I, I don't know. I don't remember any of it. Um, but my mom was watching TV one night and the Ricola ad came on. So Sam was just... What, you just did the Ricola, right? Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So she's watching an ad and it's probably like late. Late, late, like late for a, a two-year-old. So like 7 p.m. Yeah, 7 p.m. Um, and then she just hears an echo from the <laughs> rooftop of the cabin of me, two-year-old me going, Ricola. From, that's awesome. From, that's one of her favorite stories to tell. So anyways, I thought it sure. This, this might explain a few things, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> I, fell out of, I fell out of that loft, so it could <clears throat> explain a few things. That's another story. But it does it, explain a lot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, Sam, recovered you, wanna... nicely. you recovered very nicely, I have to say. Yeah, besides the damages, but... God, it, 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 nobody knows this, honestly. So, and we've got Edna with us. This is about Edna. This, <laughs> this is about Edna. <clears throat> Welcome Edna, to the podcast, Edna. Thank you so much for having me. And I apologize in advance for the little bit of the Kermit the Frog voice and lozenge. Yeah. Uh, rain- the rainbow. Yeah. Mm. No, honestly, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, don't worry about that at all. That's why we were t- for everybody who's listening. That's why we were talking about cough drops before we hit record. And we're like, hey, there's some primo stuff here. And when I sang it out, I'm not going to do it again. Um, but Edna, thanks for joining us. I, I actually don't know when we first met. It's been that long. Do you know? See, I can't, I can't. All I remember is you were in rooms at the same time as me for a long time. And every time you opened your mouth, I wanted to hear what you had to say every single time. A long time ago, <clears throat> I can't, it was before. In the before time. It was before the first Cyber Reason event that you were. Way before. So like maybe, I don't know. I, I was before I was at Arbor. Let just let's be clear. Yes, it was before. It might have been in a, a mass TLC event. Probably when I was at RSA or something like that. Or exactly. you were at Cisco still, right? Yes, I was also fourteen at that time. For the yes, you, yeah, <laughs> and quite quite attractive. So what does that put me at? Is a mere thought. You were in the attic, in the little hole. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was yeah. you know, what could go in the attic. That's great. Um, but, uh, your career has been amazing and, um, I can't even begin to summarize it. Uh, I don't, how do you introduce yourself when people ask you this? I, I, I will, I will try to add some things that you leave out, but what do you, uh, how do I introduce myself as hi, I'm Edna. Hi, Edna. Yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, career wise, you, you, now were you a lawyer originally because you worked for the attorney general in New Hampshire, right? Were you assistant attorney general? I was. I prosecuted yeah. homicide cases, straight out which is a great way to understand what's important in life and what which it makes is. you capable of dealing with CFOs and lawyers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was that was a very big gift, uh, to be honest with you. And then I practiced law for twenty years. You're going to make me tell them that I'm not. I am disease. I can pull it out. I really not out. what I was trying to do. Um, and represented. This was after the mass deal at see at fourteen, of course. Yes, <laughs> just a few years. Uh, so private practice, twenty years financial services, um, a lot of tech companies, and a lot of technology that spanned a variety of spectrums. So think about Exeter laser technology and turbine technology and. Software, of course, but there was amazing things happening in a variety of places. And what happened was it began this journey of liking to weave quilts because I see connections where people don't always see connections. That's what connects the homicide legal prosecutor to the security investigative side. I think, that that's the weaving. Right. I think it's weaving and it was always protecting intellectual property, which at the end of the day, everything we protect 
rises to the level of something, someone at an individual level, an enterprise level, a nation state level cares about, right? Might not mark right. the definition of copyrightable or patentable. Sorry, the lawyer's coming out. But it's stuff we care about. That's the technical jargon we should use. So was very happy um, doing that and um, came back and I did this bi-coastal thing. I was at a farm in California. I stayed most of my life in New Hampshire and then um, went to Cisco. Cisco was a client, was lucky enough to go join them and had basically four careers there. I, I know about the CISO for the supply chain at Cisco. What were the other three? <laughs> so when I first joined, if you think about, and both of you might not remember this, um, kind of not really being 14, um, the, when you saw the dot-com revolution start, I was right. you saw folks thinking about things in a very siloed and sometimes linear way, right? So routers and switches were things that you saw you didn't necessarily think about the software on them. You wrote the right. software that was fantastic. Don't get me wrong. Operating systems were great, but you saw that. What could go wrong, right? Well, there is a box. Here's the box. You get it. Um, so too, as that growth happened, they were hiring unbelievable lawyers and our first general counsel was fantastic. Um, and there were some things that were going on that I had the ability to assist with. And that led them to conclude that maybe it would be great if I came in house and built a licensing team to think about software and hardware and other things that we license. So you, uh, you mean you, you mean like taking patents that you had or actual SDKs and licensing those, or was it was it like hey we have the intellectual they weren't, they weren't quite ready for SDK licensing in, in you know two thousand Sam, but yes the answer is yes. Put all of that you know in the soup and say. I want to share my letter from A to Z with you, but there are different ways in which I can share that, different risks involved in sharing it. I was very happy doing that, built that, and did it all from New Hampshire back in the day when there was dial-up. That's the way I... So I've been working remotely. I laugh when people are like, this is all what? my age. And like, I've when 14-4 was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What part of uh, New Hampshire were you living in? Same one I'm living in now. So, which is? Merrimack, New Hampshire, South, South ah, New Hampshire, and then we love that's it. where. Where are you from? My dad was born in Merrimack area, and then I grew up in Ossipee, New Hampshire. Um, okay. Also, so most people had high speed by the time that really I was starting to learn uh, internet things, which I started with Cisco CNA, CCNA classes actually. First, oh, those are, I grew those up in, are, in New Hampshire on a dirt road with only dial up, so. Uh, it took us a long time to get bandwidth that was not dial up where I was. Yeah, I still don't have fiber up in the other house, which is in Thornton up in the White Mountain. Oh, you live up in Thornton yes. as well? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's beautiful. And, um, it is gorgeous, but I really am praying for the fiber to come. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry, you I mentioned, interrupted mid-story. Mid you mentioned um, uh, .com. When I moved to San Jose, I moved from the wilds of Canada, where I had high speed. Mm -hmm. I moved to San Jose, where they didn't. And that blew my mind. So in New Hampshire, you, you may have got it sooner. Possibly, yes. In San Jose? Mm, San Jose, I was like... We're East Coast, a little more forward-looking. Forward yeah. I, well, I, well, I'm not going to go there because for years I just... When people ask me, where, you know, where do you live or where are you right now? Or describe yourself and say, I hail from the live for your die state. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Go read a history book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, are those license plates made in prison? Because that I would always find delicious, right? Somebody's stamping and it says live free or die all the time. Like, they actually were. And as a prosecutor, I received a, an, when there were plates that didn't quite come out the way they want, they molded them into, this is back in the day when smoking was seen as something you did, um, ashtrays. Really? Oh, well, I have a live free or die license plate ashtray somewhere. Well, anyone who chooses it is clearly mm -hmm. taking the latter, right? Like, hey, freedom, Sam. Maybe both. Maybe both. Uh, yeah. And yeah. both. There's a cost. No judgment. There were uh, so, so where were yeah. we? 
we were at intellectual property <laughs> developing licensing at Cisco. And then you um, were going to have a second role at Cisco. He didn't know. He only knew the fourth one. That's what it was. Actually, you knew the third one, I think. And then I moved into the fourth one. So you met me when I was on the third one. So we went from this. So I was very happy doing that. Loved doing that. And then we, um, we had back in the old days, a group called manufacturing before supply chain was the jargon de jure. And, um, I represented them and I had the best, the best client, which was a group called the tech center, which doesn't exist anymore. And it was where all of the R and D skunk works happened so oh, that's cool all the fun stuff happened there and i got to see it in advance and talking you know power of the ethernet was like memorable and um so i loved that and i expanded the scope and um, one day i was talking to the chief development officer he called me in and he was describing something to me about what we were going to do we were creating this first ever global government solutions group and there was another executive there who i had tremendous regard for and I said, okay, what is it going to do? I was thinking about commercial off-the-shelf technologies and selling them to governments, particularly democratic governments, most of which have laws that say if you do too much co-development or take too much money, all of a sudden, let's go back to protecting IP. That intellectual property is no longer yours, or at least at best is shared you know, with the government that you participated in the development with. So... Um, I was all excited, typical Edna, right? I didn't quite let everybody finish and said, oh, that would be great. I'd love to build a team in the legal department to support that. And I still remember this because there are there are three pivotal moments in my life. The first, I will tell you about after, and it was in the, um, in the LA County Court. Um, and, this, and I was a relatively new lawyer. And the second was this, where I'm sitting with this senior executive and... I'm all excited. And he said, stop talking. <laughs> okay. Um, he said, I'm not asking you to build a legal team. I'm asking you to come join the organization. Uh, and I stopped. And this is when I learned to ask the same question that I've asked ever since, which is, do I have to move? And the answer was no. So I moved over and did that and was the executive sponsor for routing in space on the payload of satellites, eccentric warfare, and a whole host of things and became more deeply enamored with what our governments are doing for us around the world. And that's when I fell in love with Edna right there, but just so you know. (laughs) And then I was very happy doing that when someone else came and said, I'm building, we're going to morph supply chain into this bigger thing that's going to have services and value chain and I think I need you to come over. And this began the journey of, it started at Cisco with, what what do I do? Is there a job description? No. Okay, great. So here's the problem with this personality, right? And I think a lot of us are like this. If there's this beautiful, well-paved road that already has streetlights on it, um, it, okay, that's fabulous. And then over here to the right, is this dark, grandly, woods-like thing, and you've got a machete. And you get to pick which path you go. I inevitably find myself with the machete in my hand, like, yes, let's go there. So I said yes, and I took over doing all of the contracts again for all of the third-party ecosystem. I did all of our environmental um, and social responsibility requirements. And this was around the time, if you remember when the European Union, if you've ever picked up anything today, they often have ROS or restriction on hazardous substances. I've heard some people say ROHAS. Depends on what part of the world you're from. Restrictions, right? Particularly on electronics because we were filling on landfills as we still are with a lot of bad things. But Europe is, um, Jacob, you said the East Coast is usually first on some things. Europe is usually ahead of us on environmental and social issues. By by a few millennia. And regulations, let's be honest, right? I mean, that's the truth of the matter, um, to their credit. And so I had to comply with that. Um, And I got a very short period of time because somebody had been working on it for a while. And when I came in, um, 
it hadn't been completed yet. And we had a deadline that was much shorter than the deadline that had been established by the European Union because two thirds of it had been eroded. Um, was very happy doing that when I went to the leadership and said, listen, I have an idea. I think the world is going to think about security differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are back in the days when, you know, Sam, you'll certainly resonate with this. There was an IT person somewhere. There were no CISO. CISO was a title that didn't exist. There's somebody doing information security. They were in IT. Not that being in IT is a bad thing. We love IT. But um, people were in IT, by the way. <laughs> people were, weren't thinking comprehensively. So, Jacob, I'll go back to the quilt. I saw the quilt. And the quilt was people just want to be secure. They want to be safe, right? They want to operate in a place that allows them to be free of espionage, that allows them to actually protect the stuff they think is important, whether it rises to legal definition of intellectual property or not. And the way you have to do that is twofold. Um, you have to protect the enterprise. You also have to protect the solutions that you provide to them, whether it's hardware, software, services, etc. So I said, we should be the first ICT company that has a chief security officer at this point. And God bless the innovators at Cisco. They were just crazy enough to say, hmm, okay, not really sure what you're talking about, but Go for it. So, and you were the first person I ever knew with that title, and I was struck by it. But I'm gonna I'm gonna say a few things about you, and you can tell me if you think that I'm like way up, way out, okay? Because you always struck me as a bit of a rebel. You also struck me as somebody who would challenge things and challenge people's thinking and ask the question that needed to be asked, even when you didn't know the answer. So you're you're you you almost reminded me of, of Robert Frost, the road not taken. And by the way. Jacob, that might be the name of this episode. I don't know, right? Um, it is now. You want you to go? Um, well, we should we should embellish on that or something to get more original. But you take that machete and you go into the bush and you don't know what's there, and you weren't shy about doing it in front of a room full of people, and you did it because it needed to get done rather than groupthink in the room. So even even at the mass TLC, everyone's friendly with each other. Chats you would say quite loudly, make sure it got heard. You're not thinking about this. By the way, you're laughing, but it, it was amazing to see you do it. And I have a feeling you probably did that when you suggested it. Supply chain makes me think of a quilt, by the way. And I don't think it's a coincidence. You were probably thinking about what's the quilt that gets to here. I think if you think about the end, I'm not sure that I'm a rebel. Okay, but maybe you're not. Maybe I'm pushing it too far. I went to you're a challenger. I know I went to the prom with Sam. I took his name. I gave birth to one child. I have had one dog. I'm kind of a one guy woman. So we all we all challenge in some places and we're all boring in others. Like I'm dead dull in others. Like, right. So um I think I like the joy that comes from learning from others. There is so much around us that people forget about. Um, and if you watch what happened, for example, with the medical industry when they started to specialize, you know, and the story I always tell is like, we got to the point at a certain time, let's say late seventies, early eighties, where you'd walk in, you know, you'd, you'd walk into the podiatrist, right? Yeah, I was just thinking podiatry. Who chooses that? I mean, it's not our demographic, so I can say this. <laughs> Who's like, we just lost 50 Maybe I should leave that yeah, on. Yeah, podiatry. And you're right. Shropity in the UK. You're missing. Literally, it's been cut off. You know, you're bleeding from your shoulder, and your left eye is like hanging out of its socket. And the podiatrist looks. You have a hangnail. Says you look fantastic. Your feet are great. No bunions. No any of the other things that plague your feet. Sorry, I'm not familiar with them. But we had specialized, and then. You know, years later, when I had other medical circumstances, I realized that there was um, an opportunity for people to want to share. And they had, and, and because we're in New England, you know, I did some treatments at Mass General. They have a thing called the Tumor Board. Boy, clearly they needed marketing, right? I mean, what the heck name is that? Pause for a second. I saw a lunch sign that said fungal disease luncheon. Things went through my head. What is on that table? Is it just mushrooms? Anyway, keep going. Keep going. 
forward. I'm curious. It, yeah, see? Yeah. You know, an aside. Um, so I did um, a little work on fungus. Uh, do you know that fungus is the most resilient living thing on the planet? It is amazing. Um, and I was particularly interested in one one uh, particular stream of fungus, and it's a species called Sporobolomyces. Um, and it, I was trying to figure out if its spore discharge rate was affected by gamma rays. Um, okay. Because so much of fungus happens at night, and what would happen is you, if you changed, you know, the light variability. It's an aside. I no, that's cool. That's cool. I, I love it. Yeah. I guess we're putting together a really ugly picture of like rebellious and weird, but and, and these are you know these are that's what security is, though, isn't it? It's mostly rebels and if we do a few together, weirdos thrown in this podcast, it's going to be all mushroom dinner. I know. <laughs> in Japan, mushrooms are like cheese for us. Like they have like flavor mushrooms and mushroom stores. Okay, we need to get back to your story. You were on podiatry and your experience. And yeah, you took me off track. So where was I? I, I, you were accusing me of being rebellious, and I was trying. I, I mean, to I changed it to challenge. I like to weave quilts, hmm. and I can't do that if I can't extract the brilliance that's surrounding me. And so we did that. We built this first architecture. And we deployed it across the full spectrum, was very happy doing that, loved what I was doing, was still working with governments. And we had another opportunity at the company because the company was really innovative and they created the first, and you see a lot of these now, security and trust organizations. So we pulled over the person who was in effect the de facto CISO from IT and me. And so we secured the enterprise secured the solutions and also drove secure development life cycle so that it could be brought to the table and you could partner with all of the engineering organizations because you know sdl lives only where the developers live it doesn't live inside of the security organizations and yet if you can't communicate well and you don't have securities input so it was a, it was a novel thought um work with remarkable people there um, loved what I was doing there. Uh, still worked with governments. There was a theme here. And, um, I, so I think you met me when I was still in the supply chain operations yeah. organization. And then I moved to security and trust and became chief security officer for the value chain. And that included all of the channel partner in the cloud, et cetera. Uh, and was loving life when Microsoft came and knocked on my door and said, you know, we have these ideas about cloud. We think cloud uses hardware. We're a software company. Um, there were <laughs> remarkable, talented people who had come from hard, great hardware companies, including some, you know, chip companies. Um, wow. And they reached out to me. And I, you know, when you sit back and think about it, a lot of young folks say to me, you know, what should I do? What's my plan? I think they have a roadmap and I'm like, oh, good Lord. Okay. It's <laughs> fabulous. I'm of the opinion, by the way, that most of the time when we have these grand plans, it's like Babe Ruth pointing and saying, that's where I'm going. It would be boring if it didn't happen that way. And that most of the time the narrative is imposed after the fact. Like, yes, we should maximize opportunity, but to pretend that we know I'm doing this and this and this and this. This is my roadmap. And you know, ding, 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 ding. Like you're climbing. Remember the Matterhorn thing on prices, right? Like, mm, yeah. little, like no, you, you don't know. You're maximizing opportunity. You might have a vision. Maybe you know you want to be a neurosurgeon. Good for you. You can go to medical school and do that. But the more interesting lives are the ones that follow opportunities. And it is largely stochastic and kind of random or brownie in motion. Right? Well, in like, business too, hmm? most successful business leaders that people look up to usually do tell a narrative about how they got there and they have a story to it that sounds really put together but the reality is they were in the right place and there was opportunity and they seized opportunity yeah it's, they didn't have a plan to get there we, we have this problem by the way where we listen to an entrepreneur and they say i did this awesome and i did this awesome and i did this awesome but if you talk to all the 9999 people who failed they would tell you the same story where they there so we're rewarding the one who made it through and thinking i need to do that What's that the like survivor bias? Is that the right survivor bias? Yeah. Is that the right bias? -y? It's much more interesting to talk to the ones who failed, by the way, and to see how they adapt. I think that goes to the heart of resilience, right? And so, and now I am 
Um, actually, today, I think, is my last official day at Microsoft. Wow. Um, really? I, we we should have this tomorrow. Then we could ask you all the juicy stuff that you can uh, Yeah. Uh, when does your NDA expire? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a wonderful um, There's some great people. Experience, right? I mean, you know, the, I'm biased, but the world's best hardware company, the world's best software company. Cloud yeah. Microsoft has come. And get any better. Anything. Microsoft has been so many companies simultaneously in exactly. years. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, depending on when you joined and what year it was, we could credit the change of where Microsoft was to where it is now with Edna, right? I don't think Absolutely. so. It's in a good place. There's a lot of amazing innovation and interesting things coming out of Microsoft that are truly making a difference for the industry versus if you ask someone, myself, anyone in security, eight, 10 years ago, people would be like, burn everything, Microsoft, <laughs> throw it out the window, don't even... But now you... If someone asks me what AV do I use, I usually say is for home, put Defender on it. For small businesses, put Defender on it. It's not an enterprise. There's other decisions to make that maybe something else makes sense. And Sam and I have a bias there. So, but Defender was yeah. the, it was about the it commodities, was a, figure out the important stuff. Yeah. Right. It was a joke though, like 10 oh. years ago. And now it's not. Now it's a serious it's real. used. Yeah. I think people forget that even great companies have to work at things and there's a trajectory and a timeline, right? And so folks like to poke holes and they like to point fingers, but everybody has failures. You just may not know about them. Um, right? It's easy to know about Microsoft because it's such a massive public. I think that, yeah, yeah, you know, I have to say you've always been a builder as well, Louis, because every time I've talked to you, you've always wanted to be like, how do I make a difference? has been, you know, where do I, where do I apply my weight? You called me a few times. I remember <clears throat> three times you called me and I was coming out of the big dig. So I'm coming out in the light. <laughs> we're at a commute time and the sun is shining and my phone rings and it's Edna. And I'm like, I always want to answer. Right. So, and you're like, what do we, what do we do? What do we apply ourselves to? I think you've asked me that question two or three times because you want to make a difference. And, and we've talked about the road not taken and we've talked about now you're at a transition like today. Have you thought about what's next? And if it's too much too soon, no, no, I have. I've been on the journey and I have to say the company was wonderful. So, you know, I, the first thing I did was I went out on medical leave so that I could get another knee replacement. Um, so I'm now fully biomic from the waist down unless my ankles go. So God willing, you know. We'll put treads on your feet instead or something. Yeah. And that, would be, that would be very much appreciated. Um, and I think I wanted to do probably three or four things. So I love working with growth companies um, because, so my maiden name's Bazzoni. I'm an Italian mother. I like nurturing people. Um, sometimes smacking them on the upside of the head with a <laughs> velvet glove that has a <laughs> fist within it. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, there's a joy in that and you have an opportunity to learn and it's a way to keep relevant and present and understand and who better to learn from, right? So there's that. And so I've been doing a lot of that while I had the privilege of continuing to be an operating executive. So I'm, I've gone through quite a few boards um, and they've all successfully exited. So um, just like a child, unfortunately, they grow up and your babies leave the nest. Mm. So you have to find more babies. Um, and I'm way past the age of making some of my own. So um, I think I want to continue to do that. And then I work with both VCs and private equity companies as well to help them as they look at what it is that they're going to put in their portfolio, how they add, because the great ones, they actually wrap their arms around their entrepreneurs as well. And they help them. Yeah. offer all kinds of guidance and it's fabulous to see so a lot of board and advisory work i also wanted to do some policy work so i had the very great privilege and this is none of this is up on on uh, any of the media or yeah but um i was given the honor of being able to join the carnegie endowment for international peace as a senior fellow and we're wrapping up a project that was on cloud assurance, which actually is um, cloud reassurance companies as well as the three hyperscalers, which is fabulous to see because that doesn't always happen, at least the three U.S. hyperscalers. And we're thinking about 
how to really, who should play in and how do you address? Because the hyperscalers are doing wonderful things. Customers are trying their best, although I would argue that everybody needs to do more. Government is trying. How do we address the limit? You mean government, the government supply chain specifically, or you mean? Oh, no, no. Cloud. It's not just supply chain. It's cloud assurance overall. Everything. Yeah. The risk could come from supply chain. Can I ask a question there? Of course. I, yeah. There's a, a challenge that I'm running into frequently, and I'm not the only one. So with FedRAMP specifically mm. and vendors in the FedRAMP space, if you sell to the federal government, a SaaS product, you need FedRAMP. Very clear and cut and dry. You <clears throat> establish a contract or you go through the jab, you get sponsored. Great. Now there's a secondary wave though of all the suppliers that supply the companies that are directly supplying the federal government with SaaS. And the smaller companies like the one I work for, and there's actually going to be an ad break somewhere for them in here. <laughs> Your most important data is in the cloud. That means it's protected, right? Not exactly. Cloud providers operate on a shared responsibility model. Yes, the infrastructure availability is guaranteed, but not the availability or confidentiality of your data. When it comes to ransomware, data deletions, or data corruption, it's all your responsibility. Clumio puts data protection on autopilot with immutable, air-gapped backups and instant recoverability. Check them out at clumio.com. Sponsoring. Um... <coughs> So we're asked to do FedRAMP, but we don't want to start on the government sales journey quite yet because we're a small company and committing to a, an enterprise sales team and a federal sales team is not a smart decision as a smaller organization, as a startup. You need to kind of pick your path and execute well. But other organizations, the large, large businesses we sell to say, you need to be FedRAMP, right? And that's, that's fine. We'll go find a sponsor. We'll do it. We'll execute it. But that's a bigger challenge for us as a small company. And I talk to a lot of other startups, a lot of people in the same role as I have, and they're going through the same thing. Well, we don't want to sell to the federal government, but we have to be FedRAMP for our commercial enterprise customers. But the government's not offering a path that says, here's an easy way if you need to be FedRAMP as a secondary supplier or third supplier in this government supply chain. Um, what, what, do you, have you seen that as well? Do you think there's a solution? Is it actually a challenge? Am I the only one that's seeing it? I have a ton to say there, but and then what's your take on it? Um, I think, first talk to your senator and congressperson. <laughs> <laughs> but I I do think that there's I, a I'm for Senate, by the way. I'm just <laughs> there's a there's a real um un, beginning to be an understanding of the end to end nature of the supply chain. When things are written in a way that it's anything and everything, right? Like recent requirements in not this year's but I think last year's NDAA that said you can't sell anything to me that even a service that utilizes anything that has a printed circuit board from China. Okay. I understand that, but you need to understand that there's a global supply chain. Mm -hmm. That circuit boards only come from Taiwan and China. Um, well, a number of places, but there's an impact on that. Right. And so, you know, availability and. Uh, right. It's a tongue in cheek. But the reality is it's hard to write something that allows for that. And so how do you validate, validate it? I, I mean, for me, I asked my third parties to give me empirical data to support all of my controls that they were adhering to it. And I had both security and outside risk, which had all of the wonders of business continuity, disaster recovery, export and trade control, environmental compliance. I could keep going. And so, you know, it's a lot of information. Um, there's a way to do it. I think the way to do it is to recognize that you're in partnership with somebody and say, you can use this for others. So one thing to consider is, does your FedRAMP certification enable you to bypass or get a pass on something that someone can ask? I think you also have to have intelligent conversations and say, thank you for asking me to do this, but I'm not supporting your government contract. I'm supporting your enterprise. Is there a path? where we could schedule a time where I can do that. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes it isn't when it's a service, because if they were offering a service and you were even remotely connected, even through an agency exactly. to that service, yeah. you're in because the flow down clauses say you and everyone who is part of what you deliver to me, right? Um, but, you know, I always use this example, and Sam's probably heard it a million times when I was back in the, you know, the hardware world. Um, you 
better believe I care more about people who provide ASICs than I care about people who provide me with sheet metal for the chassis outside. Okay. Um, and so there has to be this. It's the reason why I wanted to create this role of security and risk. It's an odd title again, yet again, that I created for myself. Um, and I think the two have to go hand in hand because ultimately what we really want to do is get people to think and answer the question you're posing to them in a way of what is the risk to the business or to the government and the services that that government affords to its constituency that is going to rely on whatever it is that you're providing to them. And that takes a little bit more thought and it's very hard to do because it's very hard to write flexibility. And that's why you have certification schemes because in theory there's a human being who's knowledgeable who can look at it and say, hmm, that applies in this case, it doesn't apply in this case. So I, I always remind everybody, never ever fail to recognize the uniqueness of the human. I am not in the camp of, in fact, if they'd asked me, which nobody did, we wouldn't call it artificial intelligence. We would call it, it won't be artificial if it works, right? It, like, it's I mean, also not, there is no source of artificial intelligence. There will be intelligence if we get it right. 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 Precisely. So and you're going to roll your eyes when I say this. So, so I've had a history with certification that goes way back. I did an orange book certification. I did. The, <laughs> what year was that? She's about to puke. I did the first EAL certification, EAL two. This was in ninety. Um, <clears throat> I managed a FedRAMP moderate. I was on pursuit with you, Jacob, of a, of a FedRAMP moderate that we abandoned precisely because of business commitment. Uh, currently, at Zscaler, we have a FedRAMP high, and there's only I think six companies that have that. I think Microsoft's one of them, Edna. Right. Um, so that's between the two of us. We're one third of the that, pie in the world. Like, is that true? There's only six that have FedRAMP. That I know of. There's six. There, I could be wrong on that. Somebody should go go to the site. Yeah, I'll check that. But it's a pretty small number because I wish more people talked about that because mm -hmm. I, I didn't know what that small. I assumed the number was higher. The amount of people that most common, right? Because nobody's. It's like low. Why do you bother? Moderate people can accept it. It all comes down to risk acceptance. By the, C, by the CIOs and CISOs in charge and the agencies. And of course, right. Two, Whoever's right? the sponsoring agency. You go, well, actually, you can go through yeah. the board. There's a jab route, and you can yeah. go through a sponsoring agency. And most don't put their neck out to do it. The key for anyone who wants to do it is to go to the government whispers. These are the people that know who would do it and who won't and how they will do it. And once you're on that path, anything can be approved, right? It's just a question of having the right path to it. So the best way is to have all the components certified all the way up, but it's all about accepting risk and in a formal bureaucratic environment, that's very difficult. Well, the formal bureaucratic environment also has the wonderful gift of the waiver. So, yes. you know, waivers can source towards that government procure an opportunity to recognize the risk in a way that allows them because they don't have necessarily the luxury of saying, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to not procure this in the fashion that the regulatory schema mandates me to do so, right? I mean, this is not going to happen. And I've been on both sides here. Let's just say not many on the other side from where I sit right now, take the path less taken. It's, it's, it's very much the well-trodden path. Yeah, I think, it, and I think it varies too. I mean, there's, there's yeah. a lot there more people on the good side on things like airplane engines than there are. Mm. Yeah, you, you don't, yeah, but, you want high fault tolerance for that. Yeah. Yeah, just, just saying, you know, when, when the satellite goes up, it should probably stay up. <laughs> if the router, <laughs> I saw this meme. goes down on the payload, all I saw, right, because that's the purpose, right? But, and then there was this meme where this guy turns to, to, to uh, someone who's working on the plane. I don't know the political term, so I'll just leave it there and says, how often do planes crash? And, and the crash, and the woman said, once. Which I thought was pretty funny, right? But, but it's so, priceless. And I think a lot of people have, you know, my big claim to fame is I always ask people, they're like, you know, when you fly a lot, as so many of us do, have you ever had to use the escape? I don't know what you call it, the shoot. I call it because it's like, it's... But it's like a bouncy house. <laughs> bouncy house included with every plane for free. But there's the moment you know when you like are not a size four because as you get on it, it goes wrong. <laughs> it's like, okay, clearly I'm not, you know, 100 pounds. Um, 
once you live through that, you have a different perspective on risk tolerance as well as security um, and safety, right? And so it's uh, it's an intriguing experience. Let's leave it at that. And there's something else that I think you're passionate about, <laughs> and you talked about tapping to those around you. And I I believe, and I have no, I don't know much about it, but that you're very involved or passionate about the deaf community. Is that correct? So I'm passionate about making sure that we actually open our eyes and see everybody who's around us and see. So not necessarily just deaf, but that's a big representative group. Right. That exists. And so, look, we all have different experiences in life. You know, we talked about the people who come plan. You don't always know. And sometimes I get these crazy ideas in my head. Like a couple of years ago, I had, I just started telling my husband, and by the way, I do not speak American Sign Language. Um, but I said, I, something's telling me I need to learn this. I don't know why. Are you, are you, are you studying it? Or are you, are you? I need to figure it out, and I'll tell you why. Um, a couple of years ago now, I might have been more than a couple of years ago, I, uh, quite some time ago, I was privileged to be included in the Fortune Most Powerful Women community. And I was at one of the events, and I met somebody who I just fell in love with, um, who was deaf. And... Uh, turns out she is the president of Gallaudet University, which is an intriguing university that has public funding as well as being a nonprofit. And so they have a senator and two congresspeople sitting on their uh, actual board of trustees. And their mission is to really, you know, make sure that we are educating the deaf and heart hearing community in a bilingual way, in an environment that's bilingual ASL, as well as um, in our country, English. And they're based in <clears throat> Washington, D.C. And um, that conversation stayed with both of us for a while. And, and recently I got asked to um, interview for, and I've been told that I, this again is not public, I'm going to be joining the Board of Trustees. Okay. So I would like to think about... Are we doubting you right now? That that would be terrible. Um, probably the we we might have to. We can hold off for a bit. <clears throat> the I'll I'll bleep that part out so it'll say you're yeah, accepted so too. I'm going to be bleep, gonna be bleep, and then after the date we'll actually put what it is. Yeah, we'll have to figure that one out. But I think I'll, I'll bleep it out for the public. Yeah, great because it gives me a way to say this community is an untapped resource. And we're believing, we're begging, mm. we're just imploring people to go into the space. And if you think about folks who look, not every skill set fits everything, right? I'm, you know, 66 years old with replaced joints. I would love to tell you that I'm going to go back and become a fire person. I'm not. I'm not going to scale ladders. I just, it's not in my future. Mm. Okay. But sometimes we need to change our minds and look at the technology that exists as well as alternative methodologies to say, of course, this can happen. And these are folks who have, for any of us who have lived with challenges, whether it's mobility or, you know, one of the five senses that has been impacted or pick your poison because every single one of us on this planet has something guaranteed. We adapt, we adapt in unique and amazing ways. So I want to talk about how we can enhance that and we'll see, we'll see what happens. And then years, years ago, I, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but on the other end of the spectrum, um, I had, I met somebody who's blind and I tried to think about how they could be in a sock. And I realized everything we do had to do with visual analogies. And so I looked into how the human brain tracks things. And it turns out we don't track things very well visually. We have something called saccade motion, how our eyes jump. Um, we actually only look at about 1% of our field of vision. And most of what we think we're seeing is actually an updated picture in our, in our, in our brain, right? Oh, um, so that, and apparently we can track at most a dozen to 15 objects. But in hearing, we can actually track a lot more. I mean, spatial senses, we can track a lot more. So then I started to think, because I saw this thing um, called the Allosphere at the University of Southern California, which was trying to take large data sets and render them as using more senses 
for experience. Some of it was visual, some of it was audio. And I started to think, how could we use back then machine learning? Now we use the overused term AI. How could we use things like music, harmony, melody, disharmony, right? Dissonance. How could we use that to supplement sock monitoring? And then I was like, because I was trying to get to the point where how would, how would a blind person interact with, and it made me think of diversity because these other ways, especially neurodiversity, other ways of thinking, not as problems, but as assets and competitive advantages. And I mean competitive advantages. How can we do it? Because when you're talking about the deaf community, I don't know the numbers. It's a large number of people. They have a different cultural experience. They have different modes of thinking. And I don't mean better or worse. I mean different. And that opportunity is, is, is not present. And there's other communities like that. I think that's a fair way of thinking about it. And so that's, that's the journey that I want to go on. Um, and we, there were two things that I'm doing at um, Carnegie that I want to talk about. The cloud assurance, Jacob, you asked me a question and, and that got us off on uh, a number of things, but systemic catastrophic risk is something that's going to take all of us, the entire community, right? So public, private, individual, all of us, customers, hyperscalers, no one. Things like cascade failures and stuff like that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we've seen some things recently from some of the hyperscalers where they've stopped a whole host of capabilities for the enterprises that have actually truly embedded and woven, I'll use my weave word, the the capability of workloads into the very fabric of their businesses, right? Um, you do that as a government and you're delivering services to your citizens. That has mm-hmm. a whole other set of applications. Yeah, it's not just a web service, people. Yeah. yeah exactly. And so that's important. The, the other one is I want to start to think about the human element again because we got off on the tangent of, is it artificial intelligence or just intelligence? Predictive risk. There are a number of companies, particularly two startups that I know of, um, that I have the privilege of working with that are talking about predictive risk, <clears throat> have the beginnings of it. But I think using large language models, we can get to predictive risk. The problem is, what are the criteria and who's the monitoring, I'll use the word agency, excuse me, to validate the integrity of the data that is being mined because if the language, Mm -hmm. so let's say this, um, it's raining for 20 days in pick a place, Malaysia. I I have a supply chain. It's got people working for me in in, in critical areas in Malaysia. It's been raining for 20 days. None of my suppliers have said they're having problems. None of their workers have left and gone home to sandbag their homes. None of that has happened. We're all good. Are we really good? I don't know. What happens if 20 days goes to 25 days? Well, I need, I need data on precipitation. I need data on ground. I need data on penetration of wetness. I need a whole host of things. Where do I get that from? Well, if I got, I'm going to be biased. I'm an American. If I got a, if I get weather information from NOAA, I have a certain understanding of its integrity. If I get weather information from Edna's cousin who lives down the street, who has a tin can in the backyard and tells me how much rain we get, maybe not. Um, and yet that large language will, will mine all of that. And so how do I get to predictive risk that's meaningful? And that predictive risk gets us to two places that I love, both security and supply chain for security. I know it's going to come before it actually impacts me. I see the attack coming. And the second thing is I know what to do before the disruptive impact Mm -hmm. has occurred. And more importantly, I know when not to pull the trigger because sometimes you pull the trigger. Remember that risk discussion? And you actually don't gain benefit. You do yourself more harm because the risk ramification of riding it out is less than moving operations to a different location. So those are the things right now um, that I'm working on the host of boards that I'm on. I'm working with companies that do anything from, you know, unclonable diamond dust for track and trace and verification to logistics optimization in, uh, in the warehouse using custom robotics and uh, digital twin and some AI to help That's the cool. process and then your know, security things like MDR and the next generation of operational resilience, et cetera. There's some so interesting second order things. There's some interesting second order things that come from me as well. 
Uh, Dr. Long Kaufman and I did a presentation at RSA in 2020 where we looked at privacy enforcing technologies because of biases that come into models. And, you know, some of the, like, it might be a risk decision, but you also need to be able to say, does that get trumped by human life risk? Does that get, do we want to be putting in social issues like things like global climate change? And how do the models go completely wrong when the climate starts to behave fundamentally differently? Um, so I'm fascinated to see where this goes as you, as you advise these companies, because it's not going to be that straightforward, but it, mind you, the old actuarial tables were for first order risk and very simple things like does, does a house burn down or, or does a hurricane hit somewhere? And it's not that simple right. anymore when there's intelligent adaptation. There is not, it's so, not, and that's really important. And I, sorry, Jacob, I cut you off. No, that's okay. I, I hate, hate to have to do this, but yeah, it's startup life. We're at time. Oh. It's startup life. I have to run because we have an end of quarter deal that I have to be on the, well, the legal team about supply chain, actually. Oh, there you actually. go. Pretty um, um, so I have to go and run and do that. Sam, I'll let you finish this out because I do have to just kind of- I will. You know, so we're going to make don't... fun of you now that you're gone. Oh, that's fine. I'm, I'm sorry to do this. I usually don't, Edna. I've like, never uh, seen you do it before, but here we go. It was my nope. privilege to be here with you. Thank you so much. It was- so great to meet you, and I'm um, looking forward to hearing how you and Sam end this, and hopefully we can be in person sometime soon. The pleasure was mine. Thank you. Right. Thanks, um, Jacob. Sam, I promised you that I would try to do something to convince people that I'm not the most boring human on the planet. You are not the most boring human on the planet. You are simply not. Uh, and, what were you thinking? Though? You, you clearly have an idea. Well, I did have an idea because you know I love words. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought there's a... I am ever the optimist and I'm all about the human. So I thought I'd write something for you. Which oh. I had an extra 20 minutes this morning. What did you write? Please forgive me. I'm also a big fan of Dr. Seuss. Um, so I wrote this as a closing and I will. Okay. I want to hear it. So you know that I'm left brain, right brain. I love the written word as much as I love technology. So Edna, have fun with it. We'll do that. And all I will say at the end is thank you. And I will let the audience Enjoy it. So take it away. Okay. Well, it's 2023, and it's great to be with colleagues who strive for security. While many lament the world has gone mad, there's just too much that seems, well, bad. I offer a lens of a different color. When exploring the world, just think of the other. New disciplines, talent, and technology around us, They abound. How lucky are we? And remember my mantra, for years I've said this, know them and us. Divisions just lead to an unnecessary fuss. Instead, I implore you, see the future. Not removing all risk or conquering all evil. To me, that just seems a tad bit medieval. Rather, how about we build agility and start viewing our world as one of we. While challenges persist, the we will win. For security will strive and endeavor forever. And of this, I am certain we are better together. Thank you, Edna. That was beautiful. Thanks for having me, Sam. My privilege.